episode contains foul language, and surprisingly enough, graphic descriptions of murder. Podcast for all things strange, unusual, paranormal, supernatural, creepy, sticky, gross, scary, and everything in between. My name is Ashley, and each week my co-host Lauren and I get to sit down with a friend or expert and chat about something weird. But Lauren still hasn't got her own microphone yet, and we're in isolation, so you get another week of the hilarious, over-the-top, short-fused, but oh-so-handsome Mr. Joe Oaks. How's it going? <laughs> Hello. Hello, guys. Hi, everyone. I'm trying something new this episode. This will be the NPR edition of All Things Weird. Yeah. I'm going to be sultry. I can't be sultry. I tried. I tried really hard. I tried to be sultry. It's not just not in your wheelhouse. That's okay. That's all right. There's a lot of things I can't do. Like what? Mm, I don't know. Fully gain control of my emotions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's true. That's fair, right? Yeah, yeah, but neither can I or any person, really. Yeah. I got really mad about something that you and I are totally in agreement on like five minutes before we started record- recording this. Before we started recording, <laughs> recording started this recording episode. Who oh, have gone from NPR to Ireland <laughs> in no time. All right, this is going to be a good episode. This Hi, everybody. Episode. I'm happy Hi. to be here. Yeah, I, Joe's back. Yes, Joe's I back. Am. Joe's back. Joe's back, everybody. He never left. He never really left, Just like Jesus. Uh, speaking of Jesus, I have some Jesus stuff to talk about today. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about some archaeological and anthropological finds. Ooh, Ooh girl. girl. I love your RuPaul impression. Thank it's you. so good. Um, Ooh, girl. <laughs> Puzzling ancient discoveries have a way of captivating and igniting our imaginations. Maybe it's because it's so easy to dream up interesting explanations for how and why things exist, or maybe it's because history has more secrets and mysteries than we could ever imagine. Some archaeological and anthropological discoveries still have experts scratching their heads, some have incredible implications, and some were total fakers. Total fakers. Frauds. Frauds. Total frauds. Do you guys remember? I know Joe does. I very well, I'm sure. Do you remember in season one when I uh, alluded to Joe being an expert on our episode because he was an anthropology minor? An anthropologist. <laughs> that this is true. If if you remember, <laughs> kudos. You are an official Keep It Weird scholar. Uh, maybe you're new to the program. Maybe you just haven't listened to that episode in a while. It is true. I am the in-house authority on all things anthropological (laughs) because 15 years ago, I was an anthropology minor at a state university. Yes. So... I told you guys we had experts on sometimes. So yeah, so I am I am the resident expert on the matter, and I can actually I'll, I'll seize this opportunity to give a shout out just on the off chance if you or someone you know, love, like, 
associate with. Maybe you work with them. Maybe they're a total dill hole and you just happen to work with them somewhere. If they go to Central Connecticut State University, I encourage you, if you have the opportunity, enroll in any one of the classes being taught by Professor Ken Fader, F-E-D-E-R. He is on the short list of my favorite teachers that I ever had. He is certainly my favorite professor that I ever had in the collegiate ranks. He is the reason that I decided to actually go for a minor in anthropology because he was just such a rad dude. That's so sweet. Yep. Guys, prob- if I had to guess, I would say he was probably in his... 50s or early 60s, crazy, wild, unkempt gray hair, uh, a pretty astonishing collection of various animated dinosaur t-shirts that he would wear to school. Wow, he was uh, animated like Tom Haberford. No, anima- like like cartoon, animated? like okay. a little like cartoon right, T-Rex sure. on his t-shirt. He was he he kind of dressed like an uh, like a preschool teacher, but he was actually a doctor. <laughs> so so there you go he was a he said he looked like a quote unquote uh escaped mental patient so he was he was owning the look it was it was very very uh deliberate on his part so i love it again shout out to ken fader hello i was trying so hard to think of my favorite teacher's name and it's so sad because i don't remember it well, must not have been a very good teacher he was a great teacher mm-hmm. well you must not have been a very good pupil <laughs> Uh, or it was fucking 11 years ago, and I just don't remember. 11 years. That's nothing. It's a long time. I can tell you that's all of my of childhood memories. friends' phone numbers I know still. you can. That's fucking weird to me, though. <laughs> like, that's a weird freak person yeah, it is. trait to have. That's some weird, like, totally useless savant level <laughs> something <gasps> I, I remembered it. Okay, hey. his name, if you ever go to his name Southern was Mr. Illinois. Savant. <laughs> yeah, if you ever go to Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, there is a literature professor there. His name is Pinckney Benedict, which, like, how did I forget that name for two seconds? Pinckney Benedict. Pinckney Benedict. He has written books before. He basically, I, I was not a literature major, but I had to take this class. I've talked about it on the show before. It was post-apocalyptic literature. And he taught it, and it was one of the best classes I've ever had in my life, I've ever taken, and I feel it was like my last semester. If I had taken that class first semester, I probably would have changed majors, because it was amazing. A good good professor has the power to do that. Yeah, I mean, actually, I took a course uh, from from Dr. Fader, uh, and... uh, and it's uh, actually what I'm going to be talking about as part of the episode today. My little slice of pie on this lovely installment of Keep It Weird that you are going to be listening to, no doubt from quarantine, <laughs> is uh, specifically about anthropological fraud. That was an entire course that I took. We had an entire class that he began by playing Donovan's song about Atlantis. Love it. Which kicked off like two straight weeks of learning about, you know, the the fable of Atlantis and just all kinds of cool stuff. So uh, so once again, uh, thank you, Ken Fader. And uh, thank you, Pinkney Benedict. For, for you, igniting for, the minds for of igni- two youths. For igniting the passion. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to start today. Um, Joe and I today, obviously, are going to discuss some of the craziest things that we've dug up and which ones are passing the authentic test. I'm going to go with some authentic things that we have found, and Joe's going to be focusing more on the fraudulent things that we have Joe will, uh, unsurprisingly, be taking the more cynical approach (laughs) to things. 
Okay, so uh, one of my all-time favorite ancient discoveries exists in southern Peru, and it's known as the Nazca Lines. The Nazca Lines are very large geoglyphs. Geoglyphs are designs, for anyone who doesn't know, formed by depressions or shallow incisions made in the soil of the Nazca Desert. And I'm talking humongous designs. A lot of the lines run straight across the landscape, but there are also figurative designs of animals and plants made up of unbroken lines. There are over 70 animal designs, including a hummingbird, a spider, fish, llama, jaguar, monkey, lizard, dog, and a human. Other shapes include trees and flowers. The designs measure anywhere between 0.2 and 0.7 miles across. Big. The combined length of all the lines that we found is about 808 miles. Guys, these lines are huge. They are very big designs. They're they're no joke. The the spider, for the record, is personally my favorite. The spider is wild. Spider is pretty amazing. Have you seen it? Yeah, I know know what you're talking about. It's nuts. Come on. (laughs) I'll have you (laughs) know. I was an anthropology (laughs) minor at Central Connecticut State University. (laughs) I'm I'm well aware. (laughs) Um. (laughs) (laughs) Now... What is interesting about these lines, these shapes, these illustrations, is that they were created in 500 BCE, and they can only be seen from the sky. Yeah. You get zero benefit whatsoever of looking at these designs from the ground. No. There's nothing. Some can be seen from nearby plateaus, but it's very hard to decipher their shapes. Like, you can't make out what they are. You can see that there's something. Like, oh, there's something really giant over that. What is that? Yeah, but you can't see what it is. Luckily, these lines have been naturally preserved because of their isolation and the windless and stable climate, or else we would have never known that they existed. So, first of all, how do we find them? Um, the first published mention of the lines was in a book in 1553 where the author mistook them for trail markers. Then in 1586, an explorer reported on seeing ancient ruins in Peru, including the remains of, quote, roads. So at that point, they were mistaken for roads, even by looking at them via the large hills and plateaus from above them. So that's what I was saying. Like, you can't tell what they are. In 1927, a Peruvian archaeologist, whoop, you're going to do that an archaeologist. Times this episode. I know. I'm so bad at that word. Well, you're multitasking. True. Yeah. I'm looking at stuff and talking. Yeah. <laughs> and pointing my mouth in you're a direction. You're not stupid. You're just simple. <laughs> yeah. Peruvian archaeologist, uh, he spotted them while hiking in the foothills and was the first to kind of make out that they were shapes. But it wasn't until 1941 that an American historian and scholar officially studied the lines at length. And he was actually just there to study ancient irrigation systems. But as he flew over the lines, he realized that one of them was in the shape of a bird. And as he studied them, he realized that there were even lines that converge at the winter solstice in the southern hemisphere, which indicates a higher level of sophistication than they initially thought. To this day... No one has determined the purpose of the lines, not archaeologists, not historians, not even mathematicians. Their best guess is that the lines were for religious purposes. Some have suggested that some of the lines may have been markers on the horizon to show where the sun and other celestial bodies rose on certain occasions. Of course, those are for the massive straight lines, not so much the animal and plant designs, which may have been for worship, question mark, question mark, question mark. Like, no one knows. Right. No one's been able to find out. Because these lines are so mysterious, obviously, there's a lot of fun theories about them, like ancient aliens. I was just about to say, my man Eric Von Doniken, I'm sure you came across (laughs) him talking about these. I sure did. Anything that that crazy... Where's Von Doniken from? Is he he Danish? 
No, I think he's Danish. I'm not sure. I think he's from Denmark. I made Denmark. something up. Either way, anything that that crazy old coot can point to as evidence of prehistoric boy, aliens, oh boy. he's going to use them. Here's the thing. So, yes, one of the popular theories is that the Nazca lines were airports for ancient aliens or deities that had previously visited these people. To be fair, to the ancient alien believers, there are 100% lines that look like landing strips. Like, there's a subset of figure, figures that consist of straight lines, like really thick lines, and some are actually built at the top of hills and appear to stop and even elevate at the edges of cliffs. Whoa. So some believe these lines to be like airstrips, and others actually believe that these could be created specifically for launching gliders, because that is exactly what they look like. Whoa. Suggesting that we were testing out the power of flight long before the 16th century, which is when, I believe, the first hot air balloon was created but it could be wrong hot air balloons were that old yeah that's crazy. i think it was like 15 also, something for the record eric von donniken is swiss swiss things like that i just like i have to get right i can't just be like i don't know maybe he's Danish. Know, Danish. that's not going to be the end of it no. <laughs> so uh yes there are two groups one that believe the geoglyphs were made for visiting extraterrestrials and one that believes the nazca people had flight technology come on i mean maybe you don't come know on. you don't know come Both on they had these... flight technology but they couldn't see the spanish coming <laughs> Come on. Both of these groups point to the Tolima artifacts as their proof. The Tolima artifacts, also known as the Kimbaya artifacts, are these gold figurines found in South America that I believe I've talked about on the show before. Um, and they resemble jet planes. I mean, they really look like planes. It's kind of wild. Um, they uh, obviously are probably birds. But they look like planes. They look like they have like propellers and shit. It's very strange. Um, and actually in 1994, two Germans, Peter Belting and Conrad Lubers, created simplified radio controlled scale models of the Tolima artifacts and showed that their models could in fact fly. So that's pretty cool. Another figure that the ET enthusiasts point out is the figure that's been labeled the giant, or some call him the owl man. It's basically a strangely shaped dude with a large round head that some suggest looks like the typical ET head, you know, bigger than our bodies, or even a round helmet of some kind surrounding a head, which is interesting. We are still to this day discovering new lines. In 2011, two small figures were found by a Japanese team. One resembles a human, the other one an animal. In 2019, there were 143 geoglyphs announced by the Yamagata University. And there was an article in the Smithsonian about another team of Japanese researchers who identified some of the birds depicted. And what was interesting is that some of the birds that are depicted are exotic birds, birds that are not found in a desert climate. So now they're trying to figure out how the Nazca people could possibly know about those birds enough to literally create a 0.2 mile wide illustration of them that can only be seen from the sky. Right. I know. Yeah, it's weird. So they're very strange. That's pretty much all we know about the Nazca lines. They do know that they they do know how they were created because some people think, oh, they were created by extraterrestrials because there's no way we could have. But we can. They actually had a team debunk that it had to be extraterrestrial. They literally just made little markers with like pegs mm -hmm. and then made the impressions and they were able to make a pretty sophisticated shape. And there's actually, if you uh, go there, there are still some pegs in the shapes. Oh, wow. So that is how they were created. Interesting. But no one knows why they were created or 
you know, praise, communication, you know, whatever. A lot of uh, primitive cultures. I mean, shit, not even primitive. Us today think about people worshiping God. Where's God? He's in the clouds. So you think of like a primitive culture, you know, they. Especially one that has the potential. I mean, again, I'm not a I've never done a case study on the ancient peoples of Peru. But I mean, by and large, most ancient civilizations were polytheistic. They didn't worship a God. They Mm -hmm. worship the bird God, the river God, the mountain God, spider God, the spider God. Yeah, exactly. You know, the hockey God. That's my personal favorite. And the thing is, is like when you go back and read, we've talked about this on the show before. When you go back and read about Quetzalcoatl, mm-hmm. that that's an alien. Like the stories of Quetzalcoatl coming down from the sky with like all the shiny lights and like teaching them how to when to grow corn. Right. That seems like it's some sort of being that actually visited them that has some sort of intelligence. Mm. Of course, it's probably not. But but that's why so many people believe the ancient alien stuff yeah and i totally get it yeah when you can't effectively prove or debunk something you know the theories will abound exactly yeah so so the nazca lines you guys should look up pictures i'll post them on our nazca for everybody n-a-z-c-a nazca lines and they're beautiful some of them I tell you what, I listened to that episode of Keep It Weird the other day. Nasty talk about them NASCAR lines. I looked them <laughs> up online. I couldn't find anything. First of all, what are you assuming about our listeners? I couldn't find it. I couldn't find a single goddamn NASCAR line. <laughs> Spent three fucking hours looking. Uh, so it's my turn. Hi. Yeah, hi. Hello. Hi, Hello. everybody. It's time for this old anthropology minor to dust off the old boonie hat and get to work. Right? What's yeah. a boonie hat? Boonie hats. They're the... Um, they're the hats that you see on. They're typically on white people who <laughs> <laughs> who are in uh in like more like jungly indigenous or deserty locales. They're the ones that they're brimmed hats, almost like a bucket. They're well, they're brimmed hats, and they they like curl up on the sides. Oh, so like Dr. Ian Grant? Yeah, yeah. Doesn't he have one? Uh, it's not quite a cowboy hat, I but it like can't curves up. Remember. <laughs> I gotta Google Dr. Ian Grant. Yeah, hold now. on, Dr. Grant. Dr. Grant or Alan Grant. Sorry, Ian. I was say Ian e- is um, uh, Ian Malcolm. Let's take a look here. But I'm no, sure that, no, okay. no, okay, no, because a boonie hat's also got the string uh, that hangs down like under your chin, in, so, it so you can like hang off. it around. You can like hang it on your back for and, sure, you know. for sure. Yeah. Anyway, so strap on your boonie hats. The boonie hat's been dusted off. So, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to be talking about the anthropological fraud side of things unfortunately or fortunately depending on how you look at it fraud is basically every bit as much a part of anthropological history as the finds and learnings themselves the history books are rife with examples of people seeking fame riches notoriety who are willing to throw science and history wildly off course in the process if it brings them personal notoriety or acclaim so uh, anthropologists are, you know, over the years have been some pretty serious fame-seeking whores, but uh, <laughs> we can certainly also count on Joe Main Street to get involved in the act as well, because if Ivy League-educated academics are willing to lie for personal gain, you had better believe that run-of-the-mill idiots and opportunists are willing to do the same. So, like Dr. Henry Jones Jr. himself, yeah, he I knew that was going like to go a, a mile over your head. Oh, why? It's Indiana Jones. Oh. Yeah, I knew that. So I was like, going to say, he sounds like he's up to no I wrote, good. I, wrote, I was like, yeah, she's not going to know who <laughs> Henry Jones Jr. is. Dr. Henry Jones Jr., like Henry Jones Jr. himself, I will be pursuing the truth like a bloodhound. 
The only difference here being that none of these items belong in a museum. See that? See what I did there, Indiana Jones fans? So, Piltdown Man! We're going to start with an OG. We're going to start with Piltdown Man. This is an old favorite of mine. Piltdown Man? Piltdown. One okay. word. Piltdown. And it is also a staple uh, when discussing uh, anthropological fraud. Cool. So, amidst a series of discoveries between 1910 and 1912, a man named Charles Dawson, who's a British lawyer and amateur geologist, found fossilized fragments of a cranium, jawbone, and more in a gravel formation on Piltdown Common outside of Sussex, England. He brought the items to a man named Arthur Smith Woodward, who was then, at the time, the head of paleontology at the British Museum, which, for the record, is like one of the coolest places I've ever been to. I was there in 2005. I saw the Rosetta Stone. It blew my mind. It's absolutely That amazing. would be pretty amazing. He's speaking of anthropological finds, the Rosetta Stone is pretty much inarguably the biggest of all time. It's the reason that we today know how to read Egyptian hieroglyphs. Yeah. It's the only, it, it was, that was what cracked the code. Um, absolutely fascinating stuff. Anyway, so uh, Woodward was quite taken with the specimens. Uh, at a December 1912 meeting of the British Geological Survey, nerd alert, nerd alert. Uh, Woodward meow, claimed meow. that the fossils were from a previously unknown species of extinct hominid, one that could possibly be the famed and long-sought missing link between ah. apes and early human. Uh, because we can all get a little too excited and ahead of ourselves sometimes, his claims were immediately and emphatically championed and endorsed by some of England's most prominent scientists of Hell the day. Hell yeah, why not? No, well, no doubt in large part because uh, it would mean that the somewhat isolated British Isles had played a much larger role in the human evolutionary chain than previously thought. Mm -hmm. You think of things like how quickly one can get from London to Paris today. You know, it's like an hour. It's like you can right. get there in absolutely no time. But the British Channel to early man was, it might as well have been the entirety of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. You know, it was, they, so the Isles were very, very, very And secluded. early man wasn't, weren't explorers. No. <laughs> no, you don't, you don't get the first evidence of like a seafaring people until like 2500, 2000 BC with the Phoenicians in the Mediterranean. Yeah. As, at least as far back as I remember. That's like the earliest evidence of like, oh, this is these are a seafaring people. Mm -hmm. They make their living on the seas, you know, either by fishing or more, you know, later on, more, more so by trade. Anyway, I'm giving myself my own nerd alert here. <laughs> nerd alert. <laughs> so, um, so additional excavation of the site is ordered and it gets carried out for the next year plus. The work turns up a fairly decent amount of stone tools, animal bone fragments, and a bone slab that scientists refer to as the cricket bat, because they like cricket in England. Uh, oi. Terrible sport. Oh. Uh, before Dawson died in 1916, he notified Woodward that he himself had found additional items at a second site nearby. There was a tooth and bits of a skull that apparently allegedly belonged to the same individual, a combination that had scientists salivating. Tooth records are so important when identifying the human evolutionary yeah. chain. Yeah, it Even gives us... modern humans. Yeah, but it, it especially <laughs> gives us indication as to how diets changed over yeah. the years. Um, so at the time, Homo erectus had already been identified as an ancestor and a link in the chain, but to that point, very few remains had actually been discovered. So Piltdown Man was being viewed as a potential alternative to Homo erectus, either as a more common and sizable link in the chain, or at the very least, an offshoot detailing more widespread emigration from our common ancestral home being Africa. 
So this is like a hard departure yeah. for the anthropological and paleontological scientific community of the day. It was a serious detour, yeah. put, it, put it that way. So by 1926, scientists had determined that the Piltdown gravels were actually a little less ancient than initially thought. By 1930, archaeologists had, disto- had discovered Australopithecus, an even earlier ancestor of ours, and the species to which Lucy, famed fossil and one-time oldest human remains ever found, belonged. For the record, Lucy was named after the song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Because I didn't she, know that. Because she was discovered in the early 1970s, and one can only presume that most anthropologists of that time were blazing pretty, pretty ferociously. <laughs> so, so anyway, so by 1953, which was a great year, right, Mom? Right, Mom? It's the year of my mom's birth. So many examples of Australopithecus and even Neanderthal had been discovered and studied that an extensive re-examination of the Piltdown remains was ordered and undertaken. In short order, with vastly greater technology than what had previously been available 40 years prior, it was determined that Piltdown Man was a fake, albeit a very skilled one. The skull fragments were from a human approximately 600 years old. The teeth and mandible were 100% orangutan, baby. Whoa. And Dawson's subsequent single tooth finding was determined to be that of 100% chimpanzee. All objects had been carefully placed in the shallow gravel pit. Furthermore, chemical tests revealed that the artifacts had been stained with chromium and acid iron sulfate, neither of which is naturally occurring in the area. To this day, the exact identity of the main culprit, as well as his motivations, remain unclear. So they don't know if it's the guy that discovered it? They're not. They, nobody knows for certain, but most point the finger at Dawson himself. He never divulged the coordinates on that second location, and after he died in 1916, no additional items were found at the original site. Mm. Furthermore, the methodology of doctoring the artifacts suggested somehow, I don't know how, but somehow that it was all the work of one man. I'm going to have to take my source's word for that at face value. I don't know how you could determine something like that. That's the information that I came across. Although many others, or at least one other, speculatively speaking, may have aided and abetted Dawson in other ways, either via promotion or access to a lab or whatever. Access to the mandible? Yeah. So there is speculation that Dawson was motivated by a desire to swiftly, in one fell swoop, do something grand enough to gain entry into the royal society. He was allegedly somewhat of a fame seeker. Uh, uh, no, I shouldn't say a fame seeker. I should say a legacy seeker. Okay. Because things were different back then, especially in more academic circles. It wasn't about like notoriety and everything like that. It was basically just about class. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Class and credibility. But again, speculation is just gossip and there is no place for gossip in anthropology. But if you like gossip, which I know the lady, I love the lady sitting I love several feet to my gossip. right does. Uh, the speculation doesn't end with Dawson himself. Oh. Samuel Woodhead, a friend and collaborator of Dawson's, had access to bones and chemicals needed for doctoring them. Pierre Tillard de Chardin, a French Jesuit priest and paleontologist who accompanied Dawson on his first excavations at Piltdown, has been ID'd as a potential suspect. Even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. No Creator way. and author of the Sherlock Holmes series, lived near Piltdown and was a notorious fossil hound. Interesting. As for proof, actual evidence, 
the first finally surfaced in 1996 at the British Museum. A trunk with the initials M-A-C-H was discovered in storage at the museum. The trunk allegedly belonged to a man named Martin A.C. Hinton, who in 1912 was working as a volunteer at the museum as a keeper of zoology. Inside the trunk were a collection of bones that had been stained in the exact same method as the Piltdown fossils. Arthur Woodward, Dawson's chief collaborator, had allegedly turned down Hinton's request to become a paid employee of the museum shortly before the discovery of the fossils, and as rumor has it, Hinton himself planted and treated the bones as a hoax to embarrass Woodward and tarnish his reputation. Sadly, people throughout time have been so stupid to pick up on things that Woodward was at least temporarily a big deal because of these finds, and science was thrown wildly off course for 40 years in the process. Jeez. The exposure of Piltdown Man as a fraud removed the single greatest anomaly in human evolution from the books, but not until it had drastically impeded recognition of many important fossils found in Africa and buried the work and reputations of many honest archaeologists. Wow. Yeah, that's a... that's a. And there's not even really a, a person to be mad at, because nope. we don't know who to be mad at. Nope, there's really <laughs> no smoking gun. There's prime suspects, but like the Zodiac Killer, empty-handed baby. So yeah, so that's that's Piltdown Man. That's a staple. That's an OG. If you were to enroll in an anthropological fraud, or if you were to go to uh, Amazon.com, once that becomes a thing again, and purchase any one of the wonderful texts that my former professor Ken Fader himself has written, you will be exposed to this and many more stories of its ilk. Really, really fascinating stuff. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I have a question. Late on me. It might be dumb, but I have a question. Have we found the missing link yet? Mm. The missing link itself is kind it's of several a, links. is kind of an antiquated concept. Right. Yeah. Human evolution has been scientifically proven to be such a sliding scale at this point that basically you're looking for prominent bell markers. You're looking for uh jumps in uh evolutionary history. Mm-hmm. Um more often than not, they are spurned or spawned by environmental uh environmental happenings events necessity being the mother of invention at all most major leaps in human evolution can be traced back to things like ice ages volcanic eruptions drought you know and you can find actual scientific record of these in uh geological surveys um it's a uh, it's it's pretty interesting stuff you see like massive leaps in terms of like cranial capacity how our teeth changed to better adapt to a new uh adopted diet uh as certain foods we had been accustomed to became scarce while other foods remained plentiful and humans had to kind of shift um so yeah there's no real missing link per se but um but even since i first started learning about this stuff really like really learning about it when i was in middle school because i was such a dork i loved this stuff (laughs) massive massive leaps have been made like i remembered when lucy was the the oldest remains it was it was you know as far back as, as far as i had known the texts i had read or been taught lucy was the oldest human but now there's another one called turkana boy which is like even significantly older than Lucy. So, yeah, no no real missing link. It's not like, ah, here's the guy. Or like even here's the species that was the separation or the demarcation between ape and man. It's, it's a sliding scale. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I figured. 
but I also love the movie Encino Man. And I feel like if we studied that mm-hmm. more, mm-hmm. we might be able to learn more about where we came from. I actually do a fair amount of work for my job in Encino, uh, which is, you know, for the record, only like 20 minutes from my house. And every, but it's in the opposite direction from anywhere I would otherwise be going. Um, every single time I see anything or think Encino, I think of Encino Man. We should watch Encino Man. Literally every single time. Done. <laughs> it's a great movie. Done. It's a great movie. I have literally Polly nothing Shore, to do amazing. for the next, I don't know, like five years of my life, apparently. <laughs> So, yeah, plenty of stuff to rewatch. Yeah, we just got ordered another for sure 30 days of isolation. Bring so. it on, baby. I can do it. We watch every Even movie Even things in our like, not to go off on too much of a tangent here, because we are talking about anthropological fraud, not human evolution, but because my but evidence still. was from human evolution, I will say that I was even taught when I was in high school that Neanderthal was a, a, a dead end. Essentially, it was it was an offshoot of human evolution that, that eventually died out and went nowhere. But since then, we have scientifically proven that every single human being on Earth carries at least trace amounts of Neanderthal DNA, which is evidence of Neanderthal of their time as they were becoming increasingly scarce uh interbreeding and even intermingling in society with Cro-Magnon man who when I was in high school was that was that was the branch of human evolution at the same time as Neanderthal Cro-Magnon rose as Neanderthal was fading and the widely held belief was that Cro-Magnon turned into you know yeah eventually became homo sapiens sapiens and that Neanderthal went nowhere but again even in the last you know 20 years that has been disproven. Neanderthal never fully died out because we all carry trace amounts of their DNA. It's so fascinating. Really, really interesting stuff. Yeah. Here's another good program if anybody uh, wants to learn more about this stuff. But The, the idea first of- half hour of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> certainly not to, not to downplay that. But um, there is uh, the, the Nat Geo and Discovery both have tons, tons of programs that they seem to like continuously update uh, along with scientific discovery about human evolution. Um, and they are, uh, I know there's one that was done by, uh, by Nova, you know, P- PBS. Yeah. Um, that is absolutely fascinating. So if, if you're into this stuff or if listening to this is a little titillating and you think that maybe you would be into this stuff, um, give, give, give it a shot. I think it's called becoming human. The I Nova think so. One. Cause I've seen it on Netflix. Really, really, really cool shit. Love it. Well, I'm going to talk about not people. I'm going to talk about an old computer. Uh, The oldest computer that we've ever found. What? Yep. So this is uh, known as the Antikythera mechanism. The Antikythera mechanism was pulled out of the sea in 1901. It was found in a shipwreck off the coast of the Greek island Antikythera, which is where it got its name. When they found it, it was inside a wooden box. It was just a lump. It was so old. Like, it was it was nothing. When they were able to separate the pieces, it was three separate pieces they were able to separate, they were able to find that it was a bronze artifact that contained a maze of 37 interlocking gears and mysterious characters etched all over its exposed faces. The 37 gear wheels, they believe, enabled it to follow the movements of the moon and the sun through the zodiac. Navigation, baby. Yeah, they could have even predicted eclipses and even charted the moon phases as well. Wow. 
It's a hand-powered Greek analog computer used to predict astronomical positions and eclipses for calendar and astrological purposes decades before we thought they had the ability to do this. They also believed it was uh, used to track the four-year cycle of athletic games that was similar to uh, an Olympiad, um, the cycle of the ancient Egyptian games, but this one is even older than the Olympiad. Ancient Greek games. Yep, it's Greek. Um, I have some <laughs> Egypt stuff later, and I got confused. That's okay. The human fact check is here. <laughs> so as I said before, the Antikythera mechanism is generally referred to as the first known analog computer in history. Its construction relied on theories of astronomy and mathematics developed by Greek astronomers during the 2nd century BC, and it it's actually estimated to have been built around 87 BC and lost in the shipwreck only a few years later. What a fucking bummer. It, they had only had it for a couple years before man. it got lost in a shipwreck. Man, oh man. The composition of the device is impossible to analyze because of its extreme level of decomposition, but it's believed that it's made up of a low tin bronze alloy that's about 95% copper and 5% tin. The instructions inscribed on the device, as far as they can tell, were composed in Koine, Greek, which was the language written during the Hellenistic period, the Roman Empire, and the Byzantine mm -hmm. Empire. Could have told you that. As I Some people don't know. As I know. mentioned before, <laughs> uh, I was an anthropology minor at Central Connecticut State University. So, <laughs> so there. I know a thing or two. No one knows uh, who built this thing, obviously. They haven't found the patent. But they have some ideas. And one of my all-time favorite theories is the following. This was theorized in 2008 that the concept for the mechanism may have originated in the colonies of Corinth since they identified the calendar on the metonic spiral as coming from Corinth. At the same time, Syracuse was a colony of Corinth and the home of Archimedes. Mm-hmm. So the Antikythera Mechanism Research Project argued that this might imply that it had a connection with the School of Archimedes. And for anyone who doesn't know, Archimedes is one of my favorite historical persons and not just because it's the name of my favorite Disney character. Yeah. Another theory suggests that coins found by Jacques Cousteau at the wreckage site in the 1970s date the time of the device's construction and posits that its origin may have been from the ancient Greek city of Pergamon, home of the Library of Pergamum, which was second in importance only to the Library of Alexandria, Alexandria in terms of the scrolls of art, science, and math that were stored there. The Antikythera mechanism is the most sophisticated device ever found from that period, preceding the next appearance of similar devices by over 1,000 years. That's amazing that you were going to say that because I was actually going to use like the Dark Ages as a point of reference. I was going to say in 87 BC, human beings were capable of constructing that device. And then if you went to Europe a thousand years later, you had people living in stone huts in the shadow of the Roman Colosseum, you know, like hundreds hunting, gathering, and planting small crops while marauding bands of savages came through and murdered entire families because lawlessness and learning had uh, ceased to be the, uh, you know, the, the, the rule of the day. We can fall at any time. 
I think we already have. True. Yeah, but we can like <laughs> fall. I think, we could disappear I th- I th- and fall. I, th- I think how we have demonized learning and intelligence in this country in the last 20 years is all the proof positive you need to see that, you know, it's only a matter of time before the savages fucking reign supreme again. So. Very true. So because we didn't know that this was a possibility at this time, This is why further dives to the shipwreck are still being undertaken. They're still diving down there to find other things. a lot more stuff down there. In 2014 and 2015, there were dives in the hope of discovering more about the mechanism. A five-year program of the investigation started in 2014 and ended in 2019. And another five-year program is starting in May of 2020, hopefully... Um, not sure that may or may not be happening. That may now. or may not be pushed back, but another five-year dive essentially and exploration is going to be starting soon. Cool. Is James Cameron going to be heading the ex? The he might as well. He's got the technology. <laughs> he has the tools and he has the talent yeah. to get down there. He's got the tools. He has the talent. Yeah. So yeah. So that's the oldest computer that we've wow. ever found. Wow, that's a really good one. I like that. Cardiff Giant. That's what I'm going to talk about next. So uh, I thought about skipping this because my friend and uh, notorious thief and general shitbag, Stephen Lakioma, <laughs> already talked about it during your Hometown Haunts New York episode. So uh, eat my butt, Steve. I didn't realize that you were an anthropology minor in college. Oh, you weren't? Oh. Oh, weird. Oh, oh, oh strange. Well, huh. then don't take my shit. I'm going to talk about it anyway, though. He because, was talking about New York. He, well, you he know, predictably did a terrible job, and he talked about it for like 20 seconds. So I'm going to talk about it. I'm just kidding. He didn't do a terrible job. He's a great guy. He's one of my absolute best friends that I've ever had. So I will just... And basically our neighbor. And essentially my neighbor. So I will just gently build upon what he briefly touched upon. And, you know, d- yeah, tell the story, because yeah, people might get, not remember. You're going to get the, the whole kit and caboodle. Cool. All right? So the Cardiff Giant was a huge... 10-foot-tall, petrified man that was uncovered in Cardiff, New York in 1869 by a group of men who were digging a well for a local farmer named William Newell. Now, the mastermind behind the forgery was a local tobacconist and outspoken atheist named George Hull. Now, to be clear, being an outspoken atheist in the 1860s was kind of a big deal. Yeah, that was like, oh, witch, burn him. Yeah, it was like being a flat earth truther today, <laughs> yeah. where it was like just such an Excuse utterly me? inconceivably stupid viewpoint that it was like rarely met with any genuine opposition. Everybody was like, oh, okay, George. All yeah, right, yeah, all right. sure, there's no there God goes, for There goes George sure. again. There he goes. <laughs> Talking his crazy stuff. Uh, so one such argument that Hull did get in was with the congregation of a local Methodist revival church in regards to a verse in the book of Genesis, which stated that giants once lived on earth. You went to Lutheran school. You probably remember that. I remember. I mean, David and Goliath. Goliath was a giant. Pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so having previously read about a California prospector who had been accidentally petrified after drinking liquid found from a geode within a rock. Is that fucking true? Also total bullshit. Oh, <laughs> I was like, For the excuse record, me? I even have it written in parentheses. <laughs> Verbatim, I say, also total bullshit. Uh, so Hull was inspired by this to make some people look very stupid and to make a little bit of coin for himself Might along as well. the way. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the great things about this world. It's that if you ever get so disenchanted by the stupidity that surrounds you from all kinds of people, all kinds of walks of life, ethnicities, religions, economic classes, people, red, blue, doesn't matter. People are stupid. 
and you possess the ability to make money off of them. Yep. Don't ever forget that, folks. Don't ever. That's lesson number one. Lesson number episode. one. <laughs> if it ever becomes too much for you to handle, shift gears and start preying on those people. He hired men, hold that is, to quarry a 10-foot-plus block of gypsum from Iowa under the guise of it being used to make a monument to Abe Lincoln. Okay. Because honest Abe. Right? For sure. Hey, yeah. It's for Abe Lincoln. Everybody's going to be like, say no more. Say no love more. The man. Love him. Say no more. Old honest Abe. Nothing's amiss here. So he has the block of gypsum shipped to Chicago where he hires a German stonecutter. I would start singing the Simpsons stonecutter song right now, but I'll spare you. Thank you. Uh, so he hires this guy to carve a man's likeness out of it and to keep his damn dirty Deutsche mouth shut about it. <laughs> so. After doing so, stains and acids are applied to to weather the body. Uh, Knitting needles were used to create the appearance of pores on the skin. And by 18... Man, he worked fucking hard on this thing. He sure did. So by 1868, the giant was complete. So Hull has him shipped to his cousin, William Newell's farm, and has it buried there. At this point, Hull had already spent $2,600 on the hoax, which in today's dollars is over 50 grand. So, a lot of money. Better pay being, off. A lot of money being spent on this <laughs> hoax. Yeah, 2600 bucks, you know, using inflation, 50 grand today. Wow. So, a year later, Newell hires some gentlemen to dig a well on his property. Lo and behold, Ooh, boom. What's that? Giant petrified man. Giant dude. So, as Steve Lakioma was so kind to point out on his stupid and not at all entertaining <laughs> episode, Newell immediately begins charging 50 cents a head to come Hell see the giant. Yeah. He makes a fortune. So, to the credit of the scientific community, they immediately denounce the finding as a hoax. Like, immediately. Like, the first dude shows up and is like, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, 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 that's gypsum. No, that's not a person. <laughs> So, first of all, like I said, it was made from solid gypsum. What's gypsum? Gypsum is a, it's a, it's a, a mineral. It's a rock. It's okay. A, it's a, it's a mineral. I mean, like, it's a naturally our, occurring material found within the earth. Are uh, statues and monuments made out of this? That's a really good question. Once upon a time, they might have Okay. Been. I wasn't sure if that was like a, a, a normal thing to see a monument made out of. Yeah, no, that's that actually like... a really good question. It's something that, to be completely honest with you, Anna, I wish I were a little bit more. <gasps> Boom! It's a, it's Joe a, doesn't know something. It's calcium sulfate dihydrate. So it's it's a it's a calcium. It's, I guess it's mainly used as fertilizer, plaster, uh, blackboard, or sidewalk chalk. Oh, jeez. Okay. Uh, it's it's made into drywall. So so that's so yeah. So calcium. I mean, that so would make gypsum. a good bone. It's a petrified man. Right? Yeah. Okay. Um. So uh. Yeah. But also, in addition to the fact that it was made out of gypsum, uh. You know, assuming that petrified giants could be a real thing. Having been buried for thousands of years would have at least partially eroded the perfectly fresh tool markings that were on the giant. Yeah. So the guy showed up and was like, look, I can see the chisel marks. Like, I can see where you used a chisel and a knitting needle to make the pores. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know about. what you're talking about. Knitting needle. Um, I've never seen one. However... Many preachers and theologians of the day asserted oh, that it was that absolutely shit. the oh. real thing, and they caused enough, conf- at least, at least confusion over the matter that people flocked to the farm to see for themselves. Does that sound at all familiar, America? 
I would probably pay 50 cents to see it just because I think I would think it was cool. Even if I didn't, you know I want to I mean? say no, but you also got to remember that like 1869. What else was there to do? Even the smart people had no worldview back then. Like the really, really, really smart people did. And everybody else who was like, oh, a local who was, you know. Like a, a knower of things, he wouldn't have been able to know. So I. Well, tried my to thing is, is like doubt. they didn't have TV. Like, what else were they doing? Yeah, I know. women weren't allowed to read. We right. might as well go see a giant. Might as well, I guess. You got fifty cents. You can you come see cents? a petrified man. <laughs> so eventually, Hull sold his share of the giant spectacle for twenty-three grand. Are you kidding? That's four hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars in today money. So he made a he, he netted a more than twenty thousand dollar in eighteen sixty nine dollars profit. Wow! So a, a tidy sum. He sold it to a man named David Hannum, who moved the giant to Syracuse, New York. The giant drew such crowds there that P. T. Barnum himself offered fifty thousand dollars for it. When Hannum refused, P. T. Barnum reminded everybody that he too was a colossal piece of shit. So he made a replica of the giant and then claimed his was the real one and that Hannum's was the fake. Oh, P. T. And then Hannum was actually the, the fraud. Of you is yeah. So ridiculous. here, this is, this is my favorite part of the whole story. So when told of this claim by by newspaper reporters, Hannum himself exclaimed, "There's a sucker born every minute." which is the quote that is now widely misattributed to P.T. Barnum. Really? So what a, what a kick in the nuts that is for this David Hannum guy. <laughs> like, he, d- t- I mean, I'm assuming he didn't know it was a fraud. Maybe he did, but he wasn't the guy who, who had the thing commissioned. He didn't authorize the burial of it on his property before he magically discovered it and started charging people. He just did what, like, venture capitalists do. He saw an opportunity. He spent a boatload of money on it because he believed he could make up more money on yeah. it. So... Talk about a kick in the nuts. Not only does a more famous and rich guy make a fraudulent copy of your fraud and then tell everybody that you're a fraud, but your great quote regarding the matter to this very day is attributed to the guy who ruined you. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. Talk about a a thorough screwing. But also karma? Yeah. Maybe a little? Yeah. Maybe a little karma? So Hannum files a lawsuit against P.T. Barnum, right? How'd that go? A year later, Hull confessed to the whole ordeal. And the two giants were then immediately afterward deemed fakes. One last kick in the nuts for Hannum. His lawsuit against P.T. Barnum was thrown out by the judge because Barnum's claim originally that Hannum's giant was a fake was now technically true. You can't get sued for calling a fake yeah. a fake, even though at the time he was lying and thought and knew at the time that the other one was the real one and that his was the fake. He subsequently subsequently couldn't be sued for it. Oh, my God. Because his fraudulent claim turned out to be factual and there were no grounds for a lawsuit. That's hilarious. (laughs) This poor guy. Yeah. So, yeah, in spite of the fact that this was a national story of interest that ended in shame for pretty much all parties involved. Pretty much everyone, yeah. The Cardiff Giants still spawned a string of imitations, which trickled in for the next 30 years stretching from New York to Montana and Colorado. Dude, I still see on Facebook, I'll see people post a meme or a link or something of a giant 
found bones of a giant found and of course all it takes is one google search to find out that like it is completely false but that's still something that well the the, and the funny the funniest thing about that is that the people in this day and age who would post things like that are absolutely the same people who would say that dinosaur bones are fake and were planted there by scientists to to distract everybody from the bible yeah (laughs) so also so way to go everybody the the people who staunchly believe that giants were in the bible uh don't understand allegories yeah it's, <laughs> like, you guys it's a it's a, it's a, it's a metaphor it's a it's it's a, a it's, it's a manual for how to be a decent person yeah there's a lot of good in the bible totally. in fact there's Absolutely. all there's really nothing but good in the bible there's yeah. fire and brimstone and <laughs> vengeful gods and genocide and there's all kinds of crazy shit that goes down in the bible but the, the teachings themselves are the really... The New Testament teachings. Yeah. The Old Testament teachings, the teachings are a fucking are disaster. But the New Testament it's, it's teachings It's a perfect how-to manual of like how to be a good person. Aside from, you know, like selling your wife for goats or stoning her to death for, you know, going out of wedlock. Or wearing a, wearing pants. Yeah. So anyway, what you got? You got another one? Uh, yeah. I mean, speaking of the Bible, I have something directly related to the Bible. Drop that shit. I feel like I had a question for you, though. Oh, do they exist anymore? Like, are they... Giants? No. Like, the, the Cardiff Giant, is it anywhere, like, preserved, like, so you could go, like, in a museum yeah. of some kind? Yeah, it's where? on display. I, I, I don't know exactly where, but I remember I didn't write it down, but I remember I would reading totally that it, go was, see that that shit. it was on display. Yeah. Yep. I just want to see how good P.T. P.T. Barnum's is, too. Really? Yeah, both of them are. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, speaking of the Bible, I actually want to chat a bit about the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. <laughs> because I just find it fascinating. Not only the Ark of the Covenant, but also the Holy Lance, a.k.a. the Spear of Destiny, which is the spear that pierced the side of Jesus as he hung on the cross. The Holy Chalice, also known as the Holy Grail, which is the cup that Jesus drank out of during the Last Supper. But today... And also, uh, as, Indi- as we learned from Indiana Jones, uh, he was a carpenter. So it is 100% the least impressive of the goblets in the room. Perish the man who goes for the the, the bedazzled goblets. <laughs> Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus was poor as dirt. It's a, it's a wooden cup. Continue. Today, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, for anyone who doesn't know that just knows the, you know, the name, uh, is a golden crusted wooden chest that contains the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. The, which were uh, originally the 15 commandments. Yes, of course. As, and then he, he dropped one. Yes. <laughs> This, of course, according to the book of Exodus in the Bible, which is not a historical document. Just want to stress that. In ancient times, this holy box was kept in the first temple, which was King Solomon's temple, a Jewish place of worship in Jerusalem. But the first temple was destroyed in 587 BC by a Babylonian army led by King Nebuchadnezzar II. This, of course, according to the Hebrew Bible, which is not a historical document the hebrew bible how dare you no one knows what happened to the ark at that time some say that it made its way to babylon after nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city others think that the ark was buried somewhere in jerusalem or that it was destroyed along with the first temple and it's just gone forever Mm it was destroyed but today i wanted to tell a wild story that alludes to the fact that the ark of the covenant is in fact in ethiopia right now okay and that people know where it is okay 
So this is a story of two businessmen from Dallas who legitimately believe they know where the Ark of the Covenant is. So Nathan Sheets, who is the president of Nature Nate's Honey Company, met Jeff Blackard, a Dallas real estate developer and millionaire, just putting that out there, in 1999, and they became fast friends. They've gone on countless mission trips around the world, several adventures, safaris, etc., etc., So one time they were in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, with a billionaire from Boise named Jerry, no last name given. Gergich. Jerry Gergich. Gary Gergich. Gergich. Uh And they sort of, as a joke, sort of serious, mentioned that they had read an article in the National Geographic once that said that the Ark of the Covenant is here. And he pointed on the map to where it was. So Blackard and Jerry and Nate were all caught up in their excitement and enthusiasm, so caught up that they were like, are we going to go find the Ten Commandments? Like, yes, absolutely, we're going to go find the Ten Commandments. And they took an old van to get to a monastery on an island in Lake Tana, which is a a secluded part of northern Ethiopia. They claimed that as they were driving through this middle of nowhere, the few people that they did see were carrying very big guns. Uh, After 15 hours of driving, the men arrived. They found lodging in a small guest house, and the next morning they arranged for a boat to take them to the island. Nathan said at one point he was behind Jerry, uh, the billionaire, and Jeff, and he's filming them as they're walking, and he asks, what are you going to do if you find the Ark of the Covenant? And Jerry says, well, we'll just have to get it out of here. We have to hire a jet or a helicopter. Nate insists that they were just playing around when he said that. So the men were brought into this huge round building in the middle of the monastery by the monks that lived there. They said that there was an old guy with a World War II era rifle standing guard and four enormous doors with ancient locks on them. He claims that the monks unlocked one and they got to go inside and said that there were literal 50 foot ceilings full of books and small artifacts. Wow. In this room, there were four more doors, all painted with angels and other biblical icons. The monks told them that the Ark of the Covenant was inside one of them. Jerry, the billionaire, offered the monks $1 million to open up the door and let them peek, and the monks refused. So he offered $5 million just to go in and take a peek, and the monks refused. After a while, the three guys went back to the boat, um, and as they were going back to the boat, a gaggle of kids ran over to them and all had these small ancient books that they offered to sell to the guys. So Nathan and Jeff bought small books and Jerry, naturally, the billionaire, bought a large book bound in lambskin for like $800 because what's $800 to Jerry Gergich? So when the three attempted to board a plane at the airport, workers found Jerry's historical book and the police confiscated all of their things, put the three men in the back of a pickup truck and took them to the police station and charged them with stealing state-owned antiquities. At that point, Jeff remembered the videotape jokes about taking the Ark of the Covenant that was now in police custody. And he was just thinking, please, 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 please. I do not want to spend my life in prison. I just want to go home. I sure don't want to spend my life in prison in Ethiopia. Yeah, no shit. The police eventually released them and they chartered a plane to Nairobi and made it back to the States. And the two guys that bought the small books managed to get them out. Like They were hidden enough, I guess, that they... Either were allowed to keep them, I'm not sure, or they just... They must have hid them in nature's pocket. Oop. Butt crack? Yeah. Yeah. Armpit? Yeah. Butt nope. crack? Nope. You had it right the first time. On top of that, 
Ethiopians do claim that the Ark of the Covenant is there. Mm. So it's not just these three guys saying like, sure. we saw this thing. Sure. I, no, I, I totally believe that that these American guys were uh, were d- deliberately misled. Yeah. I, bl- I don't blame them for being like, oh my God, this is how they have it. Here's this crazy room. I believe that. But also, not to, not to be too cynical, but I just, the Italians during World War II pretty savagely scoured and, uh, you know, destroyed and occupied uh, Ethiopia. And knowing that, you know, being in cahoots with with Hitler and his fascination for the occult, I I would be pretty surprised if if, if they had been able to successfully hide Hide the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Well, other theories uh, as to where the Ark of the Covenant might be include uh, Europe, obviously, specifically a cathedral in France. French author Louis Charpentier claimed that the Ark was taken to the cathedral by the Knights Templar. Or in the UK, where the Templars supposedly delivered it in the... So here's the thing. How would you say this? Because like, there's the um, 1980s. Would you say the 1180s? Really? Uh-huh. Okay. I read it and I was like, how the how fuck do would I you say, say this? this out loud? Yeah. Uh, so they think that maybe the Templars supposedly delivered it to the UK in the 1180s. Some believe it was actually found in Tutankhamun's tomb. And this belief stems from the fact that there was an artifact among the findings that was a processional arc. Um, and it was listed as Shrine 261, which is also known as the Anubis Shrine, mm-hmm. which is a very famous shrine. Pictures were published of the artifacts, and that's where the rumors began. But according to several religious texts, however, the Ark of the Covenant is at Mount Nebo. According to the scriptures, the prophet Jeremiah took the Ark, the tabernacle, and the altar of incense and buried them in a cave on Mount Nebo, informing his followers that the location shall remain unknown until the time that God should gather his people again together and receive them unto mercy. So I assume that means like the end times, like when sounds like it. People are when like the rapture has. I don't sounds really like know. It. According to the Bible, specifically in the book of Deuteronomy, this was the site that Moses viewed as the promised land, and apparently also Moses's final burial place. Mount Nebo is approximately twenty nine miles slightly southeast from Jerusalem, near the east bank of the Jordan River, which is hilarious because most white Christians I know think the promised land is in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> called good universal one. studios good one. good one good one i like that yes so we don't know if it exists we don't know crazy story if it did exist ever and we don't know where it could have ended up there's right. like if it did exist and we're going off uh, and we're treating uh biblical text as historical texts because there are things that happen in the bible that they're historical records of, Lots of plenty it. G- jesus yeah jesus christ of nazareth but if we were to follow historical text only like we lose it after nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple right yeah hanging gardens of babylon and all that yeah uh well i'm happy that you ended on a somewhat more recent note because i did too really i've got a have got a really new story and this was totally new to me i had actually never heard this one before uh it's about the persian mummy princess oh yeah you said that earlier yeah. i'm so excited yeah So in November of 2000, it was reported internationally, this was worldwide news, that an approximately 2,600-year-old mummy had been found during a police raid in Pakistan. Authorities had been tipped off that a great archaeological find was to be sold on the antiquities black market for 20 million U.S. dollars. Holy shit. So they swooped in. They, you know, they, they kick down doors. They crack some skulls. They find this mummy. 
Uh, the approximate age of the mummy was quickly deduced by the inscription on the mummy's golden breastplate, which stated, quote, I am the daughter of the great King Xerxes. Whoa. People were titillated. No shit. I would have been too. I know who that is because I've seen the movie 300. Yeah, yeah exactly. He was big and he was gold. <sighs> So, for starters, mummies were thought to be the exclusive prominence of the Egyptians. Yeah. Second of all, this was a 2,600-year-old Persian princess named Rodagoon, daughter of Xerxes himself. This was one of the most significant archaeological finds ever no kidding. in Pakistan. So, immediately, a bidding war for the rights to take home and display the mummy begins. Pakistan and Iran both had very legitimate claims. Museums around the world made their case and made their offers. Even the Taliban wanted wow. the mummy. But then scientists began to study it. No. Immediately, it was discovered that the Persian grammar, which comprised the inscription, was terrible. Like, truly horrendous. There was like constant, nonstop, nothing but grammatical This is such a bummer. On this thing. Second of all, it was discovered that the coffin itself was no more than 250 years old. Damn. The mummification process was a hack job. Entire steps crucial to the mummification process had been omitted entirely. What, like taking out organs? No, all the organs were taken out, but that was like literally it. Oh. Like the preservation, and like nothing had been done. Even still... People believe what they want to. Some otherwise very smart folks thought, well, maybe this is merely a commoner of ancient Persia who had been dressed up as a princess to fetch a bigger price. But things only got weirder from there. CT scans and x-rays revealed that not only was this not a Persian princess or even commoner, but that the woman had only been dead for two years. Holy shit. Moreover... Her neck had been broken, <gasps> which led a lot of people to believe that she had been murdered specifically for the purpose of mummifying her to possibly fetch oh a windfall of money God. on the antiquities market. This suspicion was confirmed shortly thereafter when two more recently deceased women's bodies were found mummified, also with what broken the fucks? necks. So there's like a ring going on. In Pakistan. It's since stopped when these were immediately, you know, classified as frauds. But so I will say if there is anything to take from this, I guess it's at least it's not only white people who do this kind of thing. (laughs) Like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. God. It's not just us honkies. (laughs) Oh, thank God. Other people are lying sacks of shit, too. Okay, that's good. Yeah. So that's it. It's a quick, little quick hitter to that's, cool down with. Yeah, but that's crazy, insane. right? And in like a span of a week, we went from, oh my God, they mummified people in Persia and we have the daughter of King Xerxes himself to this is just some poor some woman serial who, killer, who had basically. her neck broken at some point by some piece of shit in the last two years who then got dressed up as a mummy to try to trick us. I have a question. Uh, I don't remember who it was. Was it King Tut that was set on fire? That had evidence that he was that the mummy itself was set on fire. I've never heard that personally. But... It might not have been King Tut. It was uh, some f- like big famous mummy, and there oh. was 
there was evidence that carbon the, carbon evidence yeah that the the actual mummy itself had been set on fire and, and yeah and burned and through like researching it they were able to tell that it was a fucking accident that like they didn't he wasn't purposefully set on fire something with the chemicals that they were using to wow. preserve the mummy something fucking happened <laughs> they set yes. him on fire and then put him out and buried him like nothing and now, happened. And now you get to spend the ex- the afterlife extra crispy. Yeah. And you no. have you have your you have your army of servants and soldiers and priceless belongings that were buried with you, but we also lit you on fire. And speaking of like Jerry Gergich, you know that like in the afterlife, the g- poor guy that accidentally set him on fire is yeah. like the Jerry of yeah. the afterlife. Yeah, like exactly. they're just like, Hey, remember that time you fucking remember that time set, you me, set on me on fire <laughs> and now I get to spend the rest of eternity burnt to a crisp <laughs> so i thought that was funny i'm pretty i'm almost positive it's king tut but i could be wrong i've never heard it myself but that doesn't mean that it's not true all right well that's all the time we have this week for that's Keep actually it not weird. true we have way more time but the episode's over anyway the episode's we have over. nothing we don't have to anything do. else to talk we about. have nowhere to go that's true we, we can literally talk endlessly well, what am i gonna do after this i'm gonna cook dinner in a bit yeah yeah. Yeah. I'll probably just sit in silence and wait for you to finish cooking dinner. <laughs> that's all the time we have this week for Keep It Weird slash That's a Lie. We have plenty of time, but we're going to end it now. Thank you so much, Joey, for compiling some notes and coming back on the show with me. Happy to be here. Got, the, got another one coming. I know. The I alluded to it the last time. This wasn't it. This you wasn't actually the big have, one. You have two, plan, two more planned for this season, yeah. and there might be more yeah. now that we're in this situation. As, as necessity. The listeners really appreciate it, too. For real, I got a ton of messages saying that they enjoyed your episode last week Good. and thanking us for continuing to put out content during this weird world that we are living in. Yes. So, for real, I thank know you. This, it's genuinely. My, genuinely, it's my pleasure. I'm not just saying that for, you know, flattery or lip service or anything like that. I'm not not even just because I'm bored and what else am I going to do? I always really, really enjoy doing this. And thank you listeners for continuing to listen to our show and support us on social media. And to everyone that went out and bought some of our new merch, thank you. That's so sweet. We love you so much. They're flying off the shelves. They're flying off the shelves. We're we very excited. We can't keep them in stock. If you want to show your support for the show, there are many ways to do so. Follow us on social media at Keep It Weirdcast on Facebook Instagram and Twitter. Check out our merchandise at www.etsy.com slash shop slash keep it weird podcast. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, muscle tanks, coffee mugs, buttons, patches, a literal gold necklace that says holy buckets um, engraved on it and so much good stuff. So go check that out. Also join our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash keep it weird podcast where you, where you can donate as little as $1 a month or as much as $10 a month. And depending on your donation size, you will get discounts on merchandise from our Etsy store, a monthly newsletter, and a monthly full length episode. So if you're jonesing for content, you can literally go pay $10 and get access to probably 20 or more hours of content. And then come back and donate $10 six months from now and get more episodes. We honestly do not take offense if you cancel your donation or lower your donation. The fact that you are donating to us at all is incredible. And it's something that we never even dreamed that would happen. So that was a lot. Join Lauren and I hopefully next week. We are either going to be chatting about some really crazy unsolved murders or we're going to be recording a cool YouTube special with some crazy paranormal evidence. We will see. The whole world is a mystery these days. Joe, what is our sign off this week? 
our sign off this week. Uh-huh. Um, actually, uh, I was an anthropology minor. <laughs> I just figured. If, so I don't have to give a sign off. Uh, I feel I like that's not sound, my job. I just wanted to do my, my best smug impression. <laughs> um, uh, actually, I was an anthropology minor at a state university. So I, I think I know what I'm talking just about. Just in case you guys had forgotten the first time we talked about him being an anthropology minor, I don't feel like you will ever forget it after this episode. Mm-mm, not anymore. And keep it weird. Keep it weird. Both of these groups. Sorry. Uh, I haven't even drank LaCroix. You're just a pig. I'm just disgusting. (laughs)